We shall turn now to the Word of God and we shall read from the book of the Revelation, chapter 4, just to refresh our memories. Revelation 4 and from verse 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. And may the Lord be pleased to add his own blessing to this reading of his word. And we shall continue to consider here, particularly these living creatures, they are, or as they are here referred to as these four beasts, because they reappear throughout the book of the Revelation, and we must therefore seek an understanding of what they symbolize and their relationship to the throne that is referred to again and again throughout this book. In this chapter 4, we remember in verse uh, 1 that John is told to come uh, higher into the heavenly realm. And immediately he says in verse 2, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne. That was the focus of his attention. No matter what else we might read about, this is what he is to focus his mind upon, this throne that is set in heaven. Now when we have reference then to voices and noises, and uh, uh, proceedings around that throne, they are all to be seen in their relationship to the throne itself. They are serving the purpose of the throne or the occupant 
of the throne. And that is how we ought to consider, as we've already done, the uh, four and twenty elders, and thus far these four uh, beasts are living creatures. That's all it means, living creatures. Now, I am aware that for many people, as we've already said, the book of the Revelation is considered to be very mysterious and indeed confusing. Well, it ought not to be because it is the book of the Revelation. It's not the book of mysteries. It's not the book of confusion. It's not the book of darkness. It's the book of Revelation. God is revealing truth. He doesn't want to uh, confuse us. He wants us to know. And that's how we ought to approach it. And the blessing of God and the blessing of Christ is promised to the who read it. And those who meditate upon it and think on these things. Now, I am amazed over and over at how many scholarly men interpret so many of the symbols in the book of the Revelation. And one wonders at times where they actually conjure up some of their ideas. Now, we, and I am, as you all know, one who had to subscribe at my ordination to the Westminster Confession of Faith as the confession of my faith, what I believe. It's the same with every elder, every minister in our church. Now that confession teaches us something about interpreting Scripture, and it's very important, and it's a key to understanding the Scriptures. The infallible, the infallible, Fallible. You can't go wrong. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. Now, isn't that a clear statement? The infallible rule of interpreting the Scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of the scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known. Searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Now that is something that every minister in the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland is supposed to apply when we come to the Word of God. Every minister anywhere that is subscribed to the confession, that is how he ought to prepare for the pulpit ministry, and that's how he ought to approach the Word of God. 
doesn't matter what Calvin says or Augustine says or Luther says or anyone else. It might be important. It might be helpful. But we've got to come back to this. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so when we come to a portion and we find this is difficult to understand, well, what do we do? Do we just leave it there and say, well, we'll just have to forget about it now? No. Scripture interprets. Go to the other scriptures that will interpret it for you. It's not so confusing as many people seem to imagine. So when we come to portions like this, where we're not very sure, we're not very certain, this looks difficult, well, then we ask the simple question, is there anywhere else in the Scriptures where we have anything that might shed light on this? Are there any other references to these situations or these scenarios or these persons or these creatures or whatever? And that's how we learn what it means. Now, returning, we've already noted last Lord's Day several matters relating to these four living creatures. But we have to remember there, and we've already noted it some to some degree, their relationship with the 24 elders who are around the throne. But they are also to be seen in their relationship to the seven lamps of fire, verse 5, burning before the throne. Now, we're not going to go back over the old ground that we've endeavored to cover, but the typical tabernacle and the typical temple are to be seen fulfilled here in John's vision. We noted those articles that were before God's throne and the tabernacle and the temple. And now here uh, we see them again referred to. But in the Holy of Holies, there was the golden lampstand with the seven burning lights. Here we have seven lamps before the throne, burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, you might immediately say, well, I thought there was only one Spirit of God. How can there be seven? Well, you see, we have to think in biblical terms. What did John understand seven to mean? It was completion, perfection. It was something that was complete, didn't need any addition. It was complete and perfected. And here he says there were seven uh, lamps fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. In reality, it's seven and one, like the seven lamps and the uh, lampstand and the Holy of Holies. There were seven lights, and yet they were all one lampstand. And that's what we have here. Now, you can understand this when you go to, for example, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
where Paul is writing to the Corinthians about the diversity of gifts that were given to the church in Corinth. Now, what does he say? Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verse (coughs) 4. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's only one Spirit. But there are diversities of gifts, or diversities of manifestations of that one Spirit or His influence. Verse 5, And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. So you see what John is seeing here symbolized. The diversity in the operations of the Holy Spirit. One Spirit. These lamps are not all different. The light is the same. One source. One Holy Spirit. But there are diversities of manifestations diversities of ministrations, and so on. Now, these seven spirits are before the throne, and also before the throne was the sea of glass, and then also round about the throne are these four beasts. Now, We have said already several things, drawn your attention to several things regarding these four beasts or four uh, living creatures. But we really do need to be sure that we know their identity because they're going to appear again on several occasions. Now, applying the principle, Scripture interprets Scripture, how do we interpret these living creatures? We saw last week the relationship between them and those cherubim that Ezekiel saw in his prophecy in the first chapter and Uh, particularly in the 10th chapter. Now, once you leave the, the prophecy of Ezekiel until you arrive at the epistle to the Hebrews, we have no further mention of the cherubim or the living creatures. It's as though they disappear. The last reference uh, to the living creatures, the cherubim, is in Ezekiel 11. And the only mention after that that we have in the whole New Testament is in the epistle to the Hebrews and the chapter 9. And it is a reference to something that already existed in Hebrews chapter 9, 
verse 5, over it, referring to the mercy seat, over it, the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. That is the only mention you have in the New Testament to the cherubim. And when we leave Ezekiel, we have no further mention of the living creatures of which he, to which he referred until we come here and they are referred to as these four beasts. But then we have to ask the question, well, now Ezekiel, here are these mysterious creatures appearing before you and you see the context, it's not unsimilar uh, to that of John because Ezekiel is in captivity. He joins those who, as the psalmist says, they hang their harps upon the willows and they said when they were asked to sing as one of the Lord's songs, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And they were mourners in Zion. Now, Ezekiel says he sat down with these people by the river Kiba. He was sitting amongst these mourning captives and then God showed him that he was in control and he sees coming out of the north, he sees this whirlwind and these creatures coming out of the fiery presence of God and it was all intended to show Ezekiel just like John God is in control Ezekiel it isn't the Babylonians who are controlling God is in control but then when he refers to these cherubims How does he know what God is showing him? We have to go back even further. And we go back to the book of Genesis, to the first mention we ever have in divine revelation of these creatures, these what is referred to as living creatures. We shall see in a few moments Uh, how the living creature and the cherubim are bound up. But when God drove our disobedient first parents out of the garden, what did he do? Verse 24 of Genesis 3, So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden, cherubims, plural. Now, in the authorized version, we always have reference to cherubims. But in the original, it should just be simply cherubim. You have, we'll see, uh, references to cherubs, or the cherub, singular, and then the cherubim, is the plural. M is the plural cherub 
is the singular. Cherubim is the plural. Now in the authorized version to emphasize the plurality, it is cherubims. Now, you will see just by simply reading this one verse, how many of these famous artists take artistic license as they endeavor to depict biblical scenes and biblical actions. What did God do? He placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims, and no number is identified. Now, you will have seen pictures of this great, strong-looking, angelic being with a flaming sword supposedly guarding the entrance to this tree of life. Well, that is, to say the least, most misleading because it is Cherubim, plural. We're not told how many. There might have been two, there might have been 2,000. We don't know. It isn't stated. But the thing (coughs) that here Moses understands is this. They were God's guards guarding the way into the garden and to the tree of life. That is seen as their responsibility and their activity. If we knew nothing else, we will then know this. They are God's guardsmen, as it were. They are God's guards. Yes, he can sovereignly place them where he wants, God, we're told, uh, drove out the man and he placed them there. He could have placed them anywhere, but he placed them there. Now then, the next reference we have to the cherubim. Where do we find it? We find it in the book of Exodus and in the chapter 25, where God gives instructions to Moses. In verse 18 of Exodus 25, here's what God says. Thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims On the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. Now, you might well ask the question, How did Moses know what these cherubims even looked like? Because God doesn't give Moses 
any description of them. He just tells him, Moses, you make these cherubims. They're to be made of of a beaten olive gold, of beaten works. Shall you make them and so on? And then you see that God in the next chapter tells Moses that he's to make, to pick cherubims all round in the tabernacle. Well, how did Moses have any idea what these cherubims even looked like? In the sermon that Stephen preached, Stephen the martyr, in Acts chapter 7, Scripture interprets Scripture. So, what does Stephen tell us? Acts chapter 7, verse 22, verse 20. We may read from verse 21. When he was, as Moses was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. Now, you imagine as Moses grows up, Pharaoh's daughter, he's a prince in Egypt, he's treated, he's educated as an Egyptian prince. And even from a young age, you and I can today, we can go and we can see the or if we wanted to and could afford to, we could go and see the pyramids. We could go to the Valley of the Kings and see the burial chambers of the great pharaohs. Now, they didn't just build these burial places whenever the king died or shortly before he died. They would be preparing his burial place For years, because they knew he was going to die. And you imagine Moses grows up and he's around the palace. He's in Pharaoh's household. He belongs to the royal family now. They'll be preparing a tomb for him. They'll be preparing a burial place like any other pharaoh. And what was significant about the burial place of the pharaohs? They all had cherubim guarding the entrance to their burial chambers. Egypt was full of cherubims. And if uh, when the Archaeologists discovered various pharaoh's tombs and they would enter into them. They would find cherubim outside and many cherubim inside, guarding the pharaoh's coffins and so on. Moses, we are told, verse 22 of Acts 7, was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds. And as I said, it's good to remember, because people forget, Moses didn't write in Hebrew 
as we often think the Old Testament, that was all written in Hebrew and a few pieces of, uh, here and there uh, of the Chaldee language. When Moses wrote, he was trained, he was educated to write and read Egyptian. Moses would be the best interpreter if he was around of all the hieroglyphics and all the writings with all the different figures and so on on the uh, great stones and all the uh, temples and so on in Egypt today. Moses did not need God to tell him what the cherubims looked like. When God said, make cherubims, did Moses say, you mean like cherubims in Egypt? He didn't know of any other cherubims. They were the only cherubims he'd ever seen, he'd ever known of. And when Moses was writing the five books, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, and he's telling us of God setting this, these cherubim at the entrance into uh, Eden, the east, east gate, into the garden. Well, what was Moses thinking about? What was in his mind? God has his cherubims guarding his holiness, protecting his throne. This is what was in the mind of Moses. You see, the reason for the cherubims at the entrance to the tombs of the pharaohs were because they were actually gods. The spirit of God entered into the pharaoh once he began to rule. And he was buried as a god and often referred to as the son of God. And the cherubims, you, you could go to any history, any Egyptian history, you'll see all these depictions of these winged creatures everywhere, but particularly guarding the tombs of the pharaohs. Now, I go into that so that we might know what we're talking about. Creatures here in the book of the Revelation who are around the throne of God. They are around this throne that John is seeing, the throne that governs every other throne, but around it are these living creatures. Now going back to Ezekiel, where we last see any reference to these same creatures. Ezekiel is recording what he saw, what he witnessed. And he tells us, just for the sake of time, Ezekiel 10, verse 10, as for their appearances, they four had one likeness. 
Now, hasn't he just described their differences? He has actually identified their differences and uh, uh, going back to the chapter 1, the different faces, they look very different in their appearance. And yet here he says, as for their appearance, they four had one likeness. So there were differences, but the differences are all bound up and incorporated in their likeness. Go down to verse 14 of Ezekiel 10. Everyone had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face is the face of a man. And the third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. Now, if here, John in chapter 4 of Revelation is seeing these living creatures, he would be thinking, where have I seen these creatures before? Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, where in the Scripture do I come across any similar scenes? Wouldn't he think, ah, Ezekiel, that's where they appear, Ezekiel. So his mind, like yours and mine, ought to go to Ezekiel. What's the significance of these creatures then? And we're, I've, I've already dealt with the fact they all went forward together, their wings touched, they were all in the seat, wherever one was, the other was, Wherever the intelligence of the man was, so was the diligence and the sight of the eagle. Their characteristics are all actually of one creation. They're all one. Now, verse 14 of Ezekiel 10. They had four faces. So we've just, uh, then verse 15. And the cherubims, plural, were lifted up. This is the living creature that I saw by the river of Kiber. Now move with me over to verse 20. This is the living creature, singular, that I saw under the God of Israel by the river Kiber. And I knew that they were the cherubims, plural. So here is Ezekiel saying, what I saw was a living creation. God's creation packed full of energy and power. But, it consisted of the cherubims, or cherubim. Verse 21, everyone had four faces apiece, and everyone four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings. They all had likeness, these cherubims, these holy, heavenly creatures. But it seems 
They have these separate identities, yet they're all one. They're all engaged in the service of God. Wherever one goes, the other goes. They are all in the same mission. They're all engaged in the same service. Wherever the one like the with the face of the eagle is, so the one with the face of the ox is. So they're all one. One creation. And yet, there are these differences within that one creation. Now, we need to keep those things in mind when we come to the book of the Revelation because these cherubim, these living creatures have disappeared out of sight until we come here. And now John says that he sees these four beasts, these living creatures around the throne of God. As we said, they depict or they symbolize rather the workings from that throne of the providence of God. And that was to be the great encouragement to John. Now, notice their relationship with the 24 elders symbolizing the redeemed church. If you go over with me to chapter 7, just for a moment, you will see there the numbering of the redeemed from the 12 tribes of Israel. To begin, John says he saw angels, and uh, then there was the numbering of the uh, redeemed from the tribes of Israel. Verse 4, just as an example, I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of the tribes of the children of Israel. And then there's an equal number from each of the tribes. Now, what John was seeing here, as when we come to it, was... God's sealing his elect from these tribes, though they were scattered, lost amongst the heathen, John is being told that the church is secure, the Old Testament church is secure. They're all sealed by God. He has his mark upon them from every tribe. But then, verse 9, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number. Or they could number the twelve tribes. But now, John says, there was a great number that couldn't be numbered. It couldn't limit them to 144,000. It was way beyond that. So that, for one thing, John is to be made aware that when the gospel would go out to the Gentiles, John, there's going to be far, far more redeemed 
out of those lost Gentiles than the Old Testament church. God had that national church preserving his truth. The oracles were committed to it and so on. And it's secure. None of those that were given to Christ in the eternal covenant will ever be lost. They're all numbered. There's none missing. You don't go to one tribe and find there's 170,000 and then you go to another tribe, there's 20,000. They're all equally secure. But then there's now a great number from all the nations that no one can number. They're just so multiplied that they can't be numbered. And what is unique about them, one of the elders Verse 13, answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? They are attired in the same way as the twenty-four elders in chapter 4. Arrayed in white robes, just as they are. They are the redeemed, the blood-bought, blood-washed. They made their uh, robes white, we're told, in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him night and day. Now initially, John doesn't see these. The focus is on the the 24 elders. That's sufficient for now. But then as we progress, John is seeing with these elders this church This redeemed church that has its God-ordained order, its God-ordained government, its God-ordained order in heaven that is made perfect, though it begun on earth. Now, here's this church. No one can number it. It's so vast. This is all to the glory of Christ as we see. Now, here there is a relationship between the church and these four living creatures. Remember what we said, they symbolize the providential workings of God. Now, we might... As I said last week, you can't depict providence no more than you can depict God. We all know what providence is and we all have our own particular providences and our own life's experience. But how do you actually depict it except through symbols? It's interesting, Louis Berkhoff, one of the Reformed theologians, His way of describing providence is this. Providence, he says, is that continued exercise of the divine energy whereby the creator preserves all his creatures is operative in all that concerns, that uh, that comes to pass in the world and directs all things to their appointed end. 
God has an appointed end in everything he does. And here we see these four living creatures. And they have a special relationship with the redeemed church. Now the theologians speak of two different kinds of providence. Some actually refer to three different kinds. There's general providence where God rules and orders everything in creation. General providence. He controls everything. Then there's what's referred to as special providence where God uses his wisdom and applies it and his knowledge of particular persons, particular creatures, that individuals are conscious God is doing something with me in the midst of all his general ordering of affairs. But then some theologians speak of special, uh, extra special providence with reference to the church. That in the midst of all that God is doing in the world, he has a special interest and a particular purpose and design for his church And so he orders everything with that in mind for his own particular people. And this is how we're to see this relationship between these living creatures and the redeemed church. Now, notice verse 8 of Revelation 4, the four beasts and each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within. And we've already noted that eyes without, full of eyes without and within. There was absolutely, this is symbolic of God's omniscience. Eyes to see everything. Eyes that miss nothing. God, the omniscient God. Nothing is outside the compass of his eternal, infinite vision. What do they do? Like all providence, like God's governing, they rest not day and night. No ceasing. God doesn't work and then take a rest. He doesn't order things today and then leave everything to itself tomorrow. They rest not day and night. These creatures before the throne never stop functioning or operating. Day and night. They are continually in flight, as it were continually in movement, continually using the qualities they possess to bring about 
God's purpose. But as they go about their service, they're making an announcement, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. What is John seeing? What is he hearing? These creatures, these living creatures, symbolizing God's holy, sovereign working in providence, everything they do, everything they're involved in, everything, uh, service they fulfill, it's declaring something. Holy, holy, holy. Now that is the only attribute of God that is referred to in Scripture like this. We don't read just, just, just is God. We don't read righteous, righteous, righteous is God. This is the only attribute of God that is referred to in this way. So that it stresses and emphasizes to you and I that God is absolutely, inflexibly holy. And everything that he does, everything that he purposes, is saying God is holy. Everything. Your providences and mine, however diverse, are all saying God is holy. God is apart from every other creature. And his purposes are apart from every other purpose. And when we go through the scriptures and we uh, recognize and we consider the various workings of God, we see these creatures that are symbolized here, as it were, functioning, serving God. We see How great and glorious God is. What happens when they're about their business day and night, going forward, carrying forward the purpose of God, saying, holy, holy, holy. Verse 9, when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat in the throne who liveth, for ever and ever. The four and twenty elders, the church, falls down before him that sat on the throne and worship him. What is a knowledge and an understanding of God's sovereign providence? What effect does it have upon us? Does it make us angry? Does it make us frustrated? Or does it create praise in our souls? Here, whenever these elders 
observe these living creatures, and they listen to them going about the service of God, fulfilling his purpose, and they hear them cry, holy, 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 and they hear them giving thanks and honor to God. What happens? Do they argue with providence? Do they resist providence? No. They fall down. They fall down. You see, this is one of the marks of the redeemed church. They acquiesce in God's good pleasure and God's sovereign purpose. And they fell down. They didn't protest. They didn't say, we don't like what God's doing. We don't want God to do things this way. They fall down. And they worship the God who's ordering everything as he's doing. The God who is bringing to pass what pleases him. They fall down. They worship because God is good. God is holy. We're told they cast their crowns before the throne. Oh, they are so pleased. God is glorified. God is pleased with his own work. Verse 11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. They cast their crowns down. When they see and when they discern God's providential workings. Thou art worthy. What a marvel. What a wonder is God's providence. We marvel at it. We wonder at it. We worship God because of his works. We don't lament. We don't protest. We don't sorrow, we don't grieve, we rejoice that he does all things well. You go back to the book of Genesis, to the 50th chapter, and you have Joseph's brethren. This is the marvel of God's mighty work. In Genesis 50... Joseph's brethren, after their father's death, they come to him, they're afraid. He will now punish them because of the way they treated him earlier in life. What do we read? Verse 20, Joseph said to his brethren, As for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, To bring to pass as it is this day. 
How many days were in between? You think of it. I reckon Joseph was probably around 17 years of age when he was carried down into Egypt. You think of all the days lying in between. You think of all the minds that were operating, for good or ill. Joseph's father, what does he think? He dotes on his son. What's in the minds of his brethren? They're jealous. They come to hate him. Then what's in their minds later? We'll kill him. Then they change their minds and they sell him. What's in the minds of those going off with their camels down into Egypt to trade? They think we'll make money. We've bought this sleeve. We'll take them to the markets. We'll sell them there and we'll profit from this transaction. Then there is another mind working down in Egypt. Pharaoh needs a servant. He goes off to the market and he buys Joseph. Takes him into his home. Then his wife, Potiphar's wife, she is a mind to seduce Joseph. Then Potiphar has a mind to imprison Joseph. And all these multitude of minds are all functioning in diverse directions, thinking different things. God sovereignly works it all out in his own scheme to bring about what he himself purposed. Now you can see again and again throughout Scripture It is marvelous to see the workings of God. In the book of Psalms, you have many references to God's providential workings, but just one or two quickly. In Psalm 115, we have there the psalmist (coughs) reminding us in verse 3, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he pleased. Whatsoever he pleased. Mightn't please you and I sometimes very well. But it pleases him. And that's what the redeemed church was recognizing as these living creatures fulfill God's purpose, bring it to pass. Ah, they were saying, and they were acquiescing, he hath done what has pleased him. In the Psalm 135, we have then, <clears throat> in that Psalm, verse 5, <clears throat> the Psalm is saying, I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas, and all deep places. He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh 
lightnings for the rain. He bringeth the wind out of his treasuries. The psalmist was seeing God's in control of everything. And it pleases him that one day's windy, another day's not. It's all under his control. If only men would recognize it. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, we have there again Solomon, the son of David. And this is what he has to say in chapter 16, verse 4. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. Yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. There isn't one wicked sinner anywhere in Grafton today that is out of control. As far as God's concerned. Even the wicked for the day of evil. Now, we need to make a distinction. Although it says the day of evil, it doesn't mean the day of sin or the, or, or, or the day that is sinful. That's not the evil that is referred to in the prophecy of Isaiah. This becomes clearer. Isaiah chapter 45. And there you have the uh, prophet writing there of what God says, and this is a, regarding Cyrus, who was a heathen king. Verse 5 of Isaiah 45, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I gird at thee, though thou hast not known me. Cyrus didn't know God. But God says, Cyrus, I clothed you with your royal robes. I put the crown in your head. I made you my servant, even though you're ignorant of me. That doesn't matter. I still rule over you. Verse 6, that ye, they may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness, I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. God is not saying, I create sin. I create evil. When men are suffering, when men are afflicted, I'm behind it. I'm controlling it. Uh, one other reference in the prophecy of Amos, you have there, uh, verse 6, this statement from God, shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not be afraid, shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? Shall there be famine in a city? The Lord not have done it. Shall there be war in a city? The Lord not have done it. Shall there be disease in a city? And it's just an accident? Never. I'm behind it. I'm working it out. It fits into my plan and my purpose. 
And you see this uh, in the Acts of the Apostles regarding the death of the Savior. Wicked hands. God didn't make men wicked. They were wicked. They thought wickedly. They planned wickedly. They thought wickedly. They acted wickedly. And God, according to his own sovereign counsel, worked out their wicked, cruel deeds to fulfill his glorious purpose to bring salvation to a multitude that no man can number. In the... Uh, With this, I will close in the book of Psalms. As I said, there are a multitude of references to the providential workings of God. And just with uh, this one, we would uh, close. Verse 8. Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thy my tears into thy book. Are into thy bottle. Are they not all in thy book? The psalmist is saying, God knows my wanderings. I can't take a a step, but he knows all about it. When sorrow comes, affliction, trials that cause tears, God's behind it, and he takes the tears of his people, and he puts them into his bottle because he never forgets them. And maybe there's times when you've been thinking it would be wonderful to have a life without tears. How pleasant it would be to begin the week and to end it without grief, without sorrow, without tears. God says no. Those tears I will put into my bottle. And if you don't know what it means, in the culture of the Old Testament, when a member of a family, particularly the aged, were dying, there would be a little glass vial that would be put to the eye of the dying, and the tear would be gathered into that little vial, and it would be kept for future generations as a memorial. And God says, when there's trouble in the city or in the experience, remember I'm behind it. And even when it causes tears, I don't ignore those tears. I keep them. They're very important to me because those tears reveal the heart And I can see what my workings in providence, the effect they're having upon the heart of my child. Now there is so much more that we can learn about the providence of God through these creatures, but we shall leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, thou art great and glorious. We have great reason to praise thee, and yet we feel again and again. Have mercy upon us. Bless thy truth to us. Open our understanding of it. Pardon us, receive us. For the Redeemer's sake. Amen.